right. Good morning, children. How are you today? Good. That's great to hear. Well, as you heard just now, today, as we already mentioned, is the Sanctity of Human Life Day. Okay? And what that just means, if you didn't understand all that human talk, it was just that our lives, okay, our lives are precious as a human being. And they're high value. Um, and we have to honor and we have to protect that. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit today in my sermon. Okay? Would you like to hear about that? Yeah? Okay. So, today, you are created. Right? You were created. You were created in God's image. Okay? God formed you. He took time and formed you. And you were born. Okay? So today, you, we're going to talk about you. Your life is very important. Okay? Very important. And it says so in the Bible. Okay? So, first of all, I have got something I want you to tell me what it is. Okay? This is a mirror, okay? I want you to tell me what you see. What do you see? Yeah. You see yourself? Do you see others? You see mom and dad back there? No, not yet? Okay. Well, like I said, I'm going to talk about you today, okay? You. So, in Genesis, chapter 1. Verse 26 and 27. This is what it says. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God created us. Okay? I'm going to tell you, later in Genesis chapter 2, this is pretty cool. Listen to this. Later in Genesis chapter 2, God formed the first man. Okay? He created all, listen, he created all the, the sky, the birds, the animals, the trees, the water, everything. And then he created, he saved the last, the best for last. He created people. And in Genesis chapter 2, he formed the first man. This is how he formed. He got the dust of the ground, and he formed it, okay? And he breathed. He breathed in his nostrils, which is his nose, and he became a living being. And he called him a man, okay? God formed the first man. And then, later, he got, he made the woman, okay, to be with the man. Listen, this is really amazing, okay? He made the man fall asleep, and he got a rib out of the man to make, to form the woman, okay? So there you have the first man and the first woman, okay? Isn't that amazing how God formed the first man and the first woman? But guess what, guys? You know, God doesn't form us like that anymore, okay? That's kind of kind of weird, right? But here's another thing. In, Gen or Genesis, in Psalms 139, 13-16, he tells us how he forms us now. I want you to look at this. Someone tell me what this is. This is a picture. This is an ultrasound, a 3D ultrasound of a baby, okay? Why it's still in the mom's tummy, 
If you, you probably can't see it back here, but if you look closely, you can see the head, the forehead, the nose, the ears, the mouth, the eyes. You can see a little hand right here, I believe. Okay? Let me read you how this came to be. Okay? In Psalms 139, 13 through 16, it says, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wondrous. I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in the secret. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single day began. Guys, that's amazing. Okay? Amazing. Think about it. God formed us. Not as the dust of the ground or off a rib, but you see a lady that's pregnant, a mommy that's pregnant, inside that belly is a precious baby that's forming. God has taken his time. It takes nine months, kids, nine months to get to be born. So he, he takes such care and such time in forming us. Our life is very, very important. And guys, listen, if God wouldn't have taken so, so much care of forming us, he wouldn't make us important. And if we weren't important to do all that, you know what? God wouldn't have sent his only son, only son, Jesus, to die for us, to, for our sins. So our life as humans is very, very precious and very, very honored. It needs to be protected, okay? So whether you are in mommy's tummy, if you're really, really old, or somewhere in between, Listen, your life is very important, okay? God created you in his image, okay? I want you to look at this mirror one more time. Look at it. You were created in his image. You were made very, very special, wonderfully, and remarkably. And this, the person that you see in this mirror, this is who Jesus died for, okay? You were very, very very important to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this day that we set aside for uh, human life. Thank you for taking your time, thanking, thanking you for, for taking so much care in forming us. Even, even the first male and female of the, of the time back in creation, when you formed us out of nothing, Lord, and you breathed your life your own air and your own design. Thank you for making us so special. And also thank you especially for making us important and sending your son Jesus to die for us, to provide us a way where we can be with you eternally one day. We ask this in your name. And everybody said, Amen. As they make their way to Children's Church, let's stand as a church and worship in song with living hope. Let's try that again. <laughs> Don't you just love technical things?
difficulties. It's all right. Here we go.
Last week, um, Jake said something in the sermon that kind of reminded me of a, a, a movie prayer um, a long time ago. Um, he said something to the effect of, sometimes we're so busy with what we've done and what we are doing, and we forget to see what God has done and what God is doing. And uh, remind me of a Sunday school lesson a long time ago, Ray Stone and I were teaching. Prayer came up. 
It says, Lord, we cleared this land, we plowed it, we sowed it, and harvested and harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dagbone hard for every crumb and morsel. But we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for the food we're about to eat. And Ray and I laughed about that because it was kind of funny because they forgot the fact that without God, he wouldn't have had the seeds. He wouldn't have the sun. He wouldn't have the soil. He wouldn't have the weather conditions. Um, Ray even brought up, wouldn't have the bees, wouldn't have the wind. Without the knowledge of his forefathers, they wouldn't have known how to clear the land, sow the seeds, or any of that. So, so he's being a little short-sighted in his prayer about how he did it all himself. And I think that was interesting because sometimes we do that too. So my prayer is this. Dear Lord, we thank you for this building that we call a church. We thank you so much that you gave its members the ability to pay for it through their talent, their time, their abilities that you gave them. We thank you so much for the members of this church and their time, their talents, their abilities to spread your word. And we thank you so much, Lord, for the people who come through these doors, the future members, the mission field, that we may reach them with your word. We say this in your son's name. Amen.
The historical figure, Helen Keller, which most of whom are aware of her story. Helen Keller was a woman debilitated by an early childhood sickness that left her both blind and deaf. It was through the dedicated teaching of a tutor, someone who took the time, the energy, and the patience to invest in her that Helen learned to speak, to read, and even to write. A quote often attributed to her is, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight and no vision. You know, there's a difference, a big difference, between sight and vision. Some men may see perfectly well, yet all the while they are spiritually blind walking around in the darkness of their own sin. Maybe you remember the famous lines of the old hymn we so often have sung as Christians. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. 
was blind, but now I... There is only one way for a spiritually blind person to be given sight, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. A genuine belief that He died on the cross for our sins and rose from His grave three days later with complete trust in Him as the new master of one's life. That's the only way a person who is blind can be made to see. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, having physical sight but no spiritual vision, I urge you and invite you to come to Jesus today, even now. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind as He performed miracles in the New Testament, and He's able to open the eyes of your heart, even this morning. Perhaps you are here this morning as a follower, a disciple, a believer in Christ. Once blinded by sin, but then Jesus took you in and praise the Lord. You've seen the light. You've seen Jesus himself. I wonder if you're still following in step that same light that first opened your eyes. You know, Jesus said this when he was teaching his followers once, whoever follows me, present tense verb, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Yes, Christians and church members can even have spiritual sight, but lose their heavenly vision for life and service in God's kingdom. It's sad, but many times it's true. In fact, there was a man named James, a disciple of Jesus, even the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote about this problematic issue in the Bible. Let's take a look at two verses this morning. In the letter that James wrote, it bears his name, James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. These verses teach us how to have a real vision for Christian life and service in God's kingdom. James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. To sum up James's message, there's a kind of religion that's wrong, and there's a kind that's real. Wrong religion produces nothing. It's worthless. Real religion bears spiritual fruit that lasts for eternity. It's precious in the sight of God. The difference between the two is whether you see yourself as a religious person or if you have a vision of God's holiness and the needs of people around you. Let's break down James's teaching in those two major thoughts. One thought found in each verse. 
First, in verse 26, you can see yourself as a religious person and not have a clear vision of your own heart. You can see yourself as a religious person and not have a clear vision of your own heart. When you focus on how religious you are in your own eyes, you fail to see God's holiness. And you fail to see humanity's desperate need for God's grace and forgiveness. Notice that the standard of judgment this one uses is rigged at the outset. James says at the beginning of verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, that is, if anyone is righteous in his own eyes, the possessor placing a price on what he possesses is biased, is it not? I remember going through the house buying process a few years ago now, and thank the Lord that the the Henry family from whom we bought our house and Miss Martha Tolson, or the real estate agent we worked through, were, were, were wonderful people. But I remember going through that process, and at one point in the process, the home had to have an appraisal. Now, as you can imagine, the Henry family didn't say, this is what the house is worth and this is what you have to pay us. And I didn't get to say, hey, this is what the house is worth and this is what I'm going to pay you. Rather, there was an independent appraiser involved in the situation. Somebody without their own special interests involved in that transaction. Who said, based upon the market around you, and the average home sales, and the price of square footage, and the the value of the home, and how it was constructed, this is what your house is worth. And both the Henry family and the Ginrich family said, okay, that's fair. They set the standard for evaluating the price of the home. When it comes to religion, who sets the standard for the faith that you practice? I would dare say that many times we seek to appraise our own selves and how good we are. Well, God, I I believe all of these things. I'm right. Well, God, I've done all of these things. I'm good. Is God appraising the vision that you have for your life and for your service in His kingdom? Or are you determining the value of your own personal contributions? I would dare say that if we ever fall into that trap, we begin to think more of ourselves than we are and less of God than who He is, and also less of the other people around us whom God created and for whom Jesus died. Notice that the evaluation itself, the evaluation of this self-appraised religious person, it, it leads to something else. It leads to boasting. James describes such a person by saying, he doesn't just think himself to be religious, He doesn't bridle his tongue, but he deceives his own heart. The prophet Jeremiah talked about the self-appraised religious Jews of his day who thought that they were something in the eyes of God because of the measure of their own rightness. Jeremiah wrote these words in chapter 9, verse 23 of his prophecy. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. 
And let not a mighty man boast of his might. And let not a rich man boast of his riches. God heard through their self-piety and saw through the spiritual facade. He still hears the truth and sees the facts in our hearts and lives today. That's the great problem with pretending to be godly. We never trick God into believing our twisted version of the truth. We only fool ourselves into accepting our own damning deceptions. That hurts, doesn't it? The only person that we're fooling is ourselves. You might think that James's estimation of self-appraised religiosity is unscrupulous. It's just too much. He's gone too far. But nevertheless, he says that self, self-righteousness is nothing more than worthless. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be worthless in the eyes of God. Jesus would put it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, when he was teaching his disciples. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You might think that you're good in your own eyes, but at the end of the day, you and I are the dishonest judges justifying ourselves before a holy God. We justify our own evil actions and ugly attitudes by dismissing God's standard of holy perfection and substituting His righteousness with a human comparison scale. Well, God, I'm better than so-and-so. I'm not like them. I don't struggle with this and I don't deal with that. So, God, I'm right here. I think the author of Amazing Grace had it right, didn't he? We are a bunch of wretches. Oh, wretched people that we are. You can see yourself as a religious person and not have a clear vision of your own heart. This is what James wanted the Christians to whom he was writing to avoid. And this is what I don't want you to fall into. But don't lose heart. There's a kind of religion that's wrong, but there's also a kind that's real. And James defines and describes that type of real religion in verse 27. You can see others in their distress and have a clear vision to serve them in purity. You can see others in their distress and have a clear vision to serve them in purity or in holiness, if you prefer. Notice that the measure of this type of religion was set by the perfect judge, an independent appraiser, if you will. James says pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. God is the one who sees. God is the one who sets the standard. He's the one who sets the vision for our life and for our service and His kingdom. I would assume that there are some here today who don't like the word religion, especially when it comes to talking about your personal faith. Religion has come to mean a great deal of things to different people, and many times it has a negative connotation in our own minds. 
But religion is a Bible word. James uses it. And I think we would do well to recapture the original intention of the author here. For James, real religion was not superficial spirituality, putting on a good show for other people to see. It was how one saw God and chose to worship Him in the way they lived their lives. It was exposing themselves for who they were in God's holy presence and allowing His grace to rush in and transform them and then showing that grace to others. A popular expression in the past few decades has been stated and heard by many. I've even shared it a few times. It's not about religion. It's about relationship with Jesus Christ. You say amen to that, right? It's good. As well intended as the phrase may be spoken, I wonder if we use that as a cop-out. I wonder if we have reduced our vision of the Christian life and service in God's kingdom because we've misunderstood that point. Now please don't misunderstand me, okay? The only way a person can get to heaven is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, good. You can't get into God's good graces by doing your own good works. It doesn't work that way. You and I are sinners. We've fallen short of God's glory and of His holy standard. There's nothing we can do that's going to put ourselves right with Him. A person has to confess Jesus is Lord, believe that He died for their sins and rose again, or they don't have any type of real religion. But what happens after that initial belief and confession? I would dare say that many who call themselves Christians think something like this. Well, pastor, I've I've got my personal relationship with Jesus. Now God can just leave me alone and I can live my life however I want to. And you go, I don't know about that. Think through this. Think through this with me. I'm saved, so why do I need to keep reading my Bible? I mean, if it tells me how to be saved, I've already experienced salvation. What's the point in continuing on a daily Bible study? I'm not going to hell because I know Jesus, so why should I take the time to show up to a church worship service every Sunday morning when that's my only day off from work throughout the week? Look, God loves me enough to save me, even though I'm a sinner. So, I mean, if if I'm already saved from my sins because God loves me, why do I need to spend my life loving all these other sinners so much? I mean, can't God just do that himself? Questions like these arise from the mindset that says, I've got my personal relationship with Jesus, so God will leave me alone and I can live my life however I jolly well please. Do you realize how foolish that sounds? Yet that's the attitude in our hearts many times. We're not saved by adhering to our own made-up religious standards, but once we are saved, we are not excused from being pure of heart and genuine in worship. That is, if you've been saved from sin, you've been saved to righteousness. It's not through good works, but by faith in God's grace. But that faith in God's grace produces a transformation that is evident to people in the way that you live and love others and love God. A personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ produces a religion that is 
real. Believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose again and confessing Him as Lord gives you a vision for your life that is bigger than your life. James explains that this real religion is simply to visit widows and orphans in their time of distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I know that sounds far too simple, doesn't it? But perhaps that's why we have such a problem practicing religion that is pure and unadulterated in God's eyes. It's often in the insignificant places with the seemingly unimportant people in the statistically inconsequential acts of service that God does His greatest works. Let me give you some examples so that you can get a better grasp of the outworking of this real religion James is talking about. On uh, Wednesday night, I was coming back driving the church van, and I had gotten a text message, which I can't look at until I'm done with the van route. So I got back here to the parking lot, and it was a message from Trevor Howard, a fellow that was playing the electric guitar up here today. He's a pretty good drummer, too, if you don't know Trevor. He said, uh, Jake, you know that who's your one thing you've been talking about at church? He was talking about you know, the the encouragement I've given to you and the challenge I've given to you to find one person in your life that you can be sharing the gospel with and building a relationship with, praying for and inviting the church. He said, well, my one got saved. Amen. Trevor didn't need me to come up here and tell you that. But the Lord was working in Trevor's heart and in the life of this one person, bringing them to faith. Thursday, uh, afternoon, our church had the food pantry distribution out of the church office. And we've got a great group. I don't know if you know this, we, we've got a great group of, uh, of ladies and also of high school students and Williams students who really, honestly, the, the students operate that distribution on Thursdays. It's, it's neat. There's some adults that do some legwork and do some running around to pick stuff up. Coy and Bryson go to get food all the time. But it's neat to see teenagers and college students handing out food to people who are in need in our community. And we're open on the third Thursday of every month from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. And so you know, people, people know that. There was a car that pulled up after the lights had been turned off and the operation had been shut down for the afternoon. It was about 4, I don't know, 4.05, 4.06, somewhere around in there. This car pulled up in the church parking lot. And these students had already come out the office door about to get in their cars and, and, and go leave. And Isaiah Cook and Caroline Whitmire and some of the others that were there with them said, let's go back inside. Let's help this one family. You might not think that that's a big deal, but my goodness, we don't know that, fa that family's story. Maybe they needed some food desperately. And because those people decided, you know what, it's a few minutes past but we got food, we've got time, let's give it to them anyways. Pure, undefiled religion. I got a call this weekend from Kelly Yates. She and her family have been helping take care of uh, Dr. Harold Wilmoth. Many of you know him, he's been a longtime church member here. He fell and busted his hip, had to have a full hip replacement. Um, surgery there at, at St. Bernard's in Jonesboro and his wife Miss Marge who hasn't been in the best of health herself has had to stay in a hospital room here at, in, uh, in Walnut Ridge 
so she can receive some, some care while Doc is out. She didn't know I was going to talk to you this morning about her family taking care of their family, but that's just that's what people who love the Lord and who love others do. That's pure and undefiled religion. It's something that's real. It's not something that's fake. There are more examples I could provide you of God seeing His people do the work of ministry that no one else may see. But that's real religion. Worshiping God in spiritual devotion and dedicated service even if nobody else is paying you any attention. At that point, it's not that you're self-righteous in your own eyes, but that God's righteousness is exuding through you and He sees it all. You can see others in their distress and have a clear vision to serve them in purity. If your spiritual vision is limited to the sight of yourself in the mirror, then you're missing what God wants you to see. You're missing the vision that God has for your life. It's not a matter of how much you are sacrificing for God or of how many people you are attracting to your own brand of Christianity or of how great a disciple you are. Listen, even as a church, we can be guilty of having sight without vision. Sure, we we see the need to build more space because we've got so many teenagers that are involved in our youth ministry. But do we have a vision for the students in our youth ministry? Or are we just attempting to throw them out there on the parking lot so that they can get out of our way? Sure, we see the many children attending Awana on Wednesday nights, but do we pray for them throughout the week and genuinely care about them learning to hide God's Word in their hearts? Or do we just like seeing the big numbers on our ministry reports? So many kids were here Wednesday. Sure, we see the hurting homes in our community, but do we call the man grieving over his wife's recent death? Do we invite the WBU student over for dinner on Monday night? Do we share the gospel with the one lost person in our lives that God's put on our heart? Do we reach out to those dealing with drug addiction in our community? Do we provide an atmosphere of accountability for the men in our church who are viewing pornography on a regular basis? Do we seek to make a difference in the lives of a woman in the community who is dealing with the personal decision of aborting their baby? Real vision is only acquired if we take our eyes off of ourselves and if we look to God. And as we worship Him and His holiness, we begin to take notice of where His gaze is fixed. I heard somebody say one time, it's all about Jesus. And Jesus is all about people. So what should your life be all about? When we begin to look at God, and then we begin to look where God is looking, we realize He's not looking at the people who are healthy. They need no physician. He's looking at the sick who need a healer. He's not peering at the ones who give sacrificial lip service in insincerity. He's watching the ones whose hearts are broken and contrite before Him in confession. 
He does not regard those who say, thank God I'm not like so-and-so. He looks at those who cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I want to ask you a few questions in closing today. Where are you looking? Do you see what God sees? How are you looking at the people whom God sees? Do you see them as God sees them? Are you practicing a religion of self-righteousness or one of real purity? What I'm getting at is this. Do you just have a sight of your own self-righteousness? Or do you have a vision of God's holiness and of other people who are in need of His grace? Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? I trust that God has spoken to your heart this morning as we've studied His Word together. And I don't know how all of you have been seeing yourselves, but I pray that God has either given or is renewing a vision of His holiness in your heart and of the needs of other people around you. Have a real vision for your life and for your service in God's kingdom. I'll be standing down here in the front. If you'd like to come and speak with me or if you just say, Pastor, I'd love for you to pray for me that I'd get a God-sized vision, a real vision for my life and for my service in His kingdom or Jake, I just I want to come and pray with you for our church that we would have a real vision of God and His holiness and the hurting people in our community that He wants us to minister to. Maybe you don't want to pray with me. Maybe you just want to talk to God where you're standing. Or maybe you even want to come down here on this altar and, and kneel down on your knees as a symbol that you are giving God the right to take control of your life. If you're here this morning and your eyes haven't yet been opened, you haven't yet received spiritual sight because you don't know the light of the world, Jesus Christ, I'd love to tell you how you can come to know Him and follow Him today. As God calls you this morning, would you respond to Him? Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee.
been wonderful to worship with each and every one of you today. I hope that you'll come back for our evening services at 6 p.m. here in the sanctuary. Before you leave today, I've got uh, one special announcement to share with you. Yes, this is a baby bottle, and no, I'm not drinking from it at lunch today, all right? This is actually a device in which you can keep change, loose change at home or maybe even in your personal vehicle. Uh, Hope Place in Newport is a pregnancy crisis care center. They're able to minister to women in the northeast Arkansas area. You actually support them as, a, as part of First Baptist Church, whether you know it or not. Our local association, the Black River Baptist Association, contributes uh, a small portion of their receipts to this ministry down there. It helps women um, who are considering uh, having an abortion. It gives them the, the opportunity to know that God has created that child and placed that child in the womb and that he has a plan and a purpose for that child's life. They're also able to minister to women who have uh, gone through that decision and already committed an abortion and are feeling guilt over the actions that, that they've committed. And they've been able to minister to ladies in that way. It's just neat to see and hear what all God is doing through that ministry. There's a little insert in your bulletin this morning about Hope Place Newport. If you want more information, you can find it there. You can visit their Facebook page, go to their website. I know that you'd love to be a part of what they're doing, and you can be. There's several of these little baby bottles, like I've got right here, and they're on these, in, in these black bags, just to the left and the right of me, on top of those speakers that say, Hope Place in Newport. What you do is collect change in this baby bottle, and when it's filled, you can either send it to Hope Place in Newport, take it there yourself, or if that's too far of a drive, bring it to the church office, and we'll get it to them. Okay, so take, take a bottle with you, take two bottles with you, however you'd like to do this, send them back, bring them back when you get the chance, and this is one way that you can practice a real religion and help some folks who are in need. Would you join with me in prayer as we're dismissed this morning? Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we've had to worship you today. God, I thank you that we have an opportunity each and every day to worship you and to minister to people. Lord, I pray that we'd see ourselves as sinners in need of God's grace and that we would choose to bestow that same grace you've given to us to others so that ultimately they can come to receive your grace if they haven't already. Lord, we lift up our nation to you today as we pause and take time to honor the sanctity, the value, the precious treasure of each human life. May we do so practically and not just politically. May our talk become action. God, may we choose to love those who are forgotten and unloved and oftentimes neglected in our societies. Lord, we pray that you would turn the hearts of your people to see the atrocities that we have validated in supporting abortion throughout the past few decades. Would you reverse that decision? God, would you help every single person to see the value that you place on every human life outside of the womb, inside of the womb, and through every stage and phase of life. God, may we remember that you made us and you sent your son Jesus to die for the sins of the world. Until all of the world hears of the grace in Christ Jesus, may we be faithful to worship you and to go and tell others 
about you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. And everybody said,